Amen. Would you remain standing in honor of God's word as we go to the text from which my assignment in this series comes from? Psalm 23, you all know it very well, beginning in verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Can you say amen? Today we continue in our series 23 where we are looking at the greatest 23 of all times, not LeBron James, not even Michael Jordan, but the greatest 23 of all time is none other than who the psalm is talking about, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And I want to minister to you from the subject, he is the greatest shepherd or the greatest shepherd. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you minister by your power, grace, anointing, and by the Holy Spirit, would you minister to the hearts of everybody who hears these, this word in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to say hello to some of you that have making your way back to church for the first time. We pray that more and more people will. If you're still watching at home, come on back to church. We're kind of at the end, if you will. This is the beginning of the end, right? They have rolled back pretty much all the restrictions. I was going to preach a message called Hello from the Other Side, but I'm going to stick with Psalm 23 right now. Anyway, last week we delve into the details of this famous psalm. And we said that most scholars believe that this is David the king who is looking back on the totality of his life. He's looking back on where God has brought him from, from David, the regular shepherd boy, to now David, the coronated king of the greatest nation on the planet. And as he's looking back on his life, his psalm becomes a boast in God. He magnifies the magnificence of God, our master and creator, who from David's perspective is the reason why he has made it through and made it to the point that he's at in life. By the way, is there anybody here that can share David's praise that, that you know that the reason why you made it through, the reason why you are here today, and the reason why you got through both seasons of promise and seasons of pain is because of God. The old song said, if it had not been for God on my side, where would I be? Where would I be? He, it says, he kept away my enemies. He let the sun shine through a cloudy day. Oh, he wrapped me in the cradle of his arms when he knew I've been tapped and torn. If it had not been for the Lord, where would I be? That's our testimony. That's everybody's testimony. And David's older self is reflecting on his younger self and his song, if you will, his psalm, his reflection becomes a boast about the greatness of God. And David is doing what he tells us to do in Psalm 34 when he says, my soul shall make its boast in the Lord. By the way, the way you beat worry and anxiety and beat depression and suppression and setback and struggle and even beat sin in your life is you make your boast in the Lord. And the greatest time to boast or the way you get the most out of your boast is when you boast when you're broken. Because it's easy for people to boast 
When everything is going wonderful in life. But the way you make the most out of your boast is when you dare to boast on the Lord in your brokenness. And one scholar tried to pinpoint exactly when David was writing this psalm. It's hard to do. Most know that he was king and he's looking back. But the precise moment has been just surmised by a whole bunch of different commentators. And one commentator said he believed that David was writing this when he was fleeing from the palace. And if you were here last week, you remember there was a time when David's life, even as king, was turned upside down. Because sometimes we think people in palaces never have problems. But as David is even in the palace, he is dealing with his son Absalom trying to overthrow him as king. Because if you recall, one of David's sons raped one of David's daughters. And Absalom got so mad about the situation that he killed the son who raped the daughter. And he got mad at David and took out vengeance on David because David wouldn't handle it himself. And so David is now running from the palace, one commentator says. And as he is running from the palace, he pens this particular son. He's making the most of his boast. He's not boasting in God during the good times when anybody could do that. He's boasting in God during the seasons of his life where he is broken. David's boast from our text today comes in the form of, of two little words. Last week we looked at the first two, the Lord. And then David says this. He said, is, notice these two words, my shepherd. David tells us so much about God being the greatest shepherd in these two little words right here. And I want to share a few thoughts with you. The first reason why God is the greatest shepherd is because he condescends. Imagine this. David calls God his shepherd. In one sense, this is not unusual because in Eastern religions, um, this was very common for a king to be a shepherd king. It was, it was, it was uh, a very common relationship of deities to their followers. And it, it's not foreign to the scripture. It's all throughout the scripture. And it begins even in the book of Genesis. And so in one way, it's not unusual that David would call God a shepherd. But in another sense, it's remarkable. That God would himself call himself a shepherd and more or less allow us to call him a shepherd. You say, why? Well, because in Bible times and in ancient societies, the shepherd's work was considered the lowest of all works. If the family needed a shepherd, it was always the youngest son who got the work that nobody else wanted to do. It was an unpleasant assignment to be a shepherd. And by the way, just as an aside here, never underestimate the assignment that you've been given. Even if you've been given an assignment because everybody is overlooking your value and so they give you something that you think you're more qualified to do, never underestimate that assignment because how God sees you fulfill the little assignments will determine how God promotes you into the destiny that he has for you. I remember when I was a 17-year-old boy, uh, maybe it was even before that. Maybe I was 15. And I started working at a restaurant as a busboy. And I remember my first night there, they had a bar and, 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 and somebody in the woman's bathroom. By the way, ladies, y'all think the men's bathroom is nasty? Women's bathrooms are nasty. Way more nasty. It looked like somebody got shot in a woman's bathroom half the time. Anyway, so somebody in a woman's bathroom misses the toilet bowl. Not with number one, but with number two. All over the place. And the owner of the restaurant comes out and he said, I need somebody to come in and help me. Now, he didn't order us to go do it. He said, I'll go in there and do it with you, but can somebody come and help? And everybody, this is my first, first night. Everybody's kind of looking at each other. 
And if you know me, I'm squeamish about all that kind of stuff. I quit medical school when I was in high school because I couldn't handle, you know, open bodies and stuff like that. It's this nasty kind of stuff. And I, I said, I'll go with you. And I went away. I put on some gloves. I put on a mask, you know, cleaned up all that mess. Walked out of there. He said, come on, we need to have a meeting. And he looked at everybody and he said, I want to introduce you to the head bus boy. There were people there three, four years, but all of a sudden, because I was willing to do something, not as on to the owner, because how many of you know, we don't do stuff as on the people, we do it on to the Lord, and that's why it's got to be excellent all the time, that's why you give it your best shot all of the time, and David got the grunt work, but how many of you know, because David handled the unpleasant job with excellence as on to God, God saw that, and he saw his heart, because how many of you know, when it came time to choose David, God told Samuel, don't look at the outward appearance because God doesn't look like that. Look on his heart. What is in your heart? How you do your work, how you serve when nobody else is looking, how you do the unpleasant things in life is an indication to God of where your heart is at and what you can be trusted with. David was given this unpleasant job because he was overlooked by everybody else. The lowest of the low. One rabbi said that a shepherd's job was the most contemptible office that there was. And yet God, the God of the universe, he allows us to call him shepherd. He's the greatest because he lays aside the accolades that he deserves. He lays aside the honor that is due his name. He lays aside his preeminence and pronounces himself and allows us to pronounce him as shepherd. He owns what we would consider to be an insult as a badge of honor. This is the kind of God that we serve. He puts his love for us before the protocols that we ought to lavish upon him. He's the greatest shepherd because he condescends. He's a different kind of shepherd. He's a shepherd king. One who, although heaven is his palace and earth is his footstool, leaves his righteous royal throne and robes himself in our rags and moves into our neighborhood not to be served for the son of man came not to be served but to be a servant of all right not to be elevated but with a towel and a basin of water washes the feet of his disciples he's great because he's a condescending shepherd king it is scandalous sovereignty not only in so much that he allows us to call himself shepherd but in who he identifies with, the defenseless, the marginalized, the oppressed. All other gods in Bible times would only identify with the rich and the powerful and the prestigious. To not so was to be thought weak, but not the God of the Bible. He identifies with the poor, the overlooked, the sick, the infirmed, the broken, the slave, the captives, the prostitutes, the tax collectors. He leaves his palace and gets placed in a manger. He hung, he hangs on a cruel cross. He trades his divinity for our humanity. He trades his immunity to become part of our community. He becomes poor so we can become rich. He becomes sin so we can become the righteousness of God. It's why he sticks out amongst all the other gods. It's why he stands alone all by himself. It's why there is no equal. It's why he is unmatched and unparalleled and indescribable and worthy of all our praise. And David, when he calls him shepherd, he's letting us know he's the greatest because he condescends. What other God do we know that comes down to where we are? Second reason why he's the greatest. And David is saying this all in two words. So you have to understand this is David's heart. 
And so there's a lot that goes into these words that, that we have to extract because, because we just read the words. But, but this is what David is, is sharing from his, the center of his being. He's the greatest because, David says, he speaks my language. David knew this metaphor, shepherd, in a unique way. He was a shepherd himself. He lived shepherd. He experienced shepherd. He knew shepherd. He thought shepherd. And God is revealing himself to David in a language he can understand. When you think about it, how else can you and I understand an infinite God? Aren't his ways beyond our ways? Aren't his thoughts higher than our thoughts? Isn't his mind beyond the pale of our comprehension? How then can we know him? How can we understand him? But ah, the brilliance of God, he leverages our experiences and then speaks our language so that we can both know him and understand him. Think about this. To those who live in a mansion, he's the king of kings. To the poor and the pauper, he's born in a stable. To the prisoner, he's the one taken captive who went to hell. To those in a courtroom, he is judge and advocate. To those in a hospital, he is the great physician. To the mason, he's the chief cornerstone. To those who thirst, he's living water. To those who lost a loved one, he is a father who lost his own son. To those struggling financially, he is the one who became poor so we can become rich. And to David, he is shepherd. He speaks our exact language. He's the greatest because he leverages our experiences. And then he allows us to get to know him based on a language that we can understand so that he can reveal himself to us and so we can relate to him and love him. And the way he speaks our language is so profound. It's as if when we, when he talks, he reads our thoughts. He, he, he's like the soulmate who, who gets you when you communicate, who says what you were thinking before you even said it. And you're like, oh, that's just what I was going to say. Isn't that God? He's the greatest because he infiltrates our thoughts. The scripture says the word of God is living and powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of the soul and the spirit and of the joints and the marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word of God is that. And if he is the word of God, then he is literally the one who is infiltrating your heart and your mind so that he can speak your language, so that he can reach you like nobody else can because God invades the solitary hidden places that we keep secret and that we don't want to tell anybody for fear that they might reject us. But God even invades those places. And God has conversations with us in those secret hidden chambers He reaches into our soul. He feels what we're feeling. He reads what we're thinking so that he can speak our language so that we can understand him. And he allows himself to be revealed through what we know. And in so doing, he redeems our experiences in life, even the ones that are not good. Because he uses those to to communicate. If you're broken, he speaks the language of the broken. If you're an addict, he speaks the language of an addict. If you're overlooked, he speaks the language of an outcast. If you're marginalized, he speaks the language of the left behind. If you're shunned, he speaks the language of the rejected. If you grew up in a single-parent home, he speaks the language of being a father to the fathers. If you're a widow, he speaks the language of a husband. If you're single, he speaks the language of a partner. He's the greatest because he can speak any language. And if you read your Bible... You know he speaks all sorts of languages. He speaks well, Jonah. He speaks fly and frogs and locusts. 
He speaks storm, peace be still, disciples. He speaks to dry bones. He speaks to dead bodies. He speaks to hard hearts. He is the greatest because he speaks our language so that we can understand him. And here's the great thing about God. It's Pentecost Sunday this weekend. Not only does he speak our language, but as we get closer to him, he gives us his language. It's called the heavenly language. It's called speaking in other tongues. When we're baptized in the Holy Spirit, the initial evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit is you speak with other tongues as the Spirit gives you utterance. And the reason why he does this is because if you've gone through life for any period of time, you know there are times when you can't even speak because you're so overwhelmed with what you're going through. And it's at times like that that you need something to bypass your head and come straight from your heart. And so God, in wanting to talk to us and communicate, Communicate with us, gives us a heavenly language so that our prayers can still, even when we can't form the words, ascend right to the throne room of God. David said, he's my shepherd. What is David saying? I, I understand him because he's allowed me to see him through my language and my circumstances. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, number three, the reason why he's the greatest is because David is saying when he says he's my shepherd, he marks me. David understood this because he understood how shepherds designated sheep to be their own. When a shepherd first buys a sheep, he must take a large, sharp killing knife and put a mark on the sheep. This is called an earmark. And he etches a distinctive mark into one of the ears of every sheep that belongs to him. Needless to say, it's not the most pleasant procedure to catch the ewe and to, to turn it, it over as to put their ear on the wooden block and notch deeply into it with a razor-sharp edge. From that point, the sheep belongs to that shepherd. If the sheep wanders, the mark says, the sheep belongs to the shepherd. If the sheep gets mixed in with other flock and cannot be identified, the mark says, this sheep belongs to that shepherd. David was saying, When he called God his shepherd, he's saying, he's my shepherd and I'm marked by him because I belong to him. David's mark came when Samuel emptied that anointing oil on him in the presence of everybody who thought all he could ever be was just a shepherd. Never worry about what people think about you. Can I just tell you something? It really does not matter what a soul thinks about you. The only thing that ever matters is what God thinks about you. Because when others see a shepherd boy, God sees a king. Don't get your eyes and your ears on what other people say and do. Get your heart focused on the Lord and God will reach into the shepherd pens and bring you to palaces and places you never thought were possible. David's marking came when Samuel poured out that oil all over him in the presence of everybody who thought he could never be. His brothers didn't accept him as king, but he was marked. Saul didn't accept him as a warrior, but he was marked. Goliath didn't regard him as a worthy opponent, but he was marked. And because he was marked, his brothers couldn't block him, and Saul couldn't stop him, and Goliath couldn't kill him. He was a made man, and that meant that God's hand was on David's life no matter what. You know you have a mark, don't you? Ephesians chapter 1 verse number 13 says, And you were also included in Christ. Literally, you became one with Christ. When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And when you believed that message, you were marked in him with a seal, the 
promise of the Holy Spirit. Your mark is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who lives in you and who is always with you is your mark. Here's your mark when you, when you wander off. He's your mark when you're hanging in crowds you don't belong in that says, no, 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 that, that, this, this person doesn't belong in this crowd and this person doesn't belong doing this and, and nobody would know by looking at you because sometimes how many of you know that mark people get mixed in with stuff they're not supposed to be mixed in with, but I want you to know even when you're mixed in, God still sees the mark of the Holy Spirit on your life. Say, that's mine right there. That's mine right there. And when God's mark is on you, I want you to know that that means don't tamper with it. The word seal in the original language literally refers, refers to when in Bible times they would send letters and they would drip wax on the seal of the, the letter and then the kings would take their insignia rings and they would press it into the wax and everybody knew whose signet or sign that was, especially if it belonged to a king. And if the letter arrived and the seal was broken... It meant that you would have to answer to the king. How many of you know when the seal of the Holy Spirit is on your life, it comes with a don't touch this anointing on it. It comes with a you can't mess with this. You can't touch this. That God is in charge of this. This is God's property. you got a seal on your life. David, when he said he's my shepherd, he was saying I'm, I'm marked by God's. I'm my beloved. He is mine. His banner over me is love. But then number four, David was saying, because he's my shepherd, he owns me. I want to just give you a Selah moment. He owns me. That's a rough phrase, isn't it? You don't own me. Your boss tells you what to do. They think they own, nobody owns me. Excuse me? Somebody does own you. His name is Jesus. Shepherd means owner, not manager. Owner. God, listen to me, is not your manager. God doesn't work for you. You work for him. You don't get to fire God when you don't like the assignment, when you don't like the commandment, when you don't like the outcome. Because guess what? You work for God. And if the truth be told, have it, had it not been for the grace and love of God, all you really are is a tool in God's hand. All you really are, all I really am, is somebody to be used for God however he sees fit. And I know we don't like to see ourselves that way. And thank God for his grace upon us. And thank God for the destiny upon us. And that's why I have committed to the purpose for which God has put me on the planet. Because if I'm committed to the purpose and I'm a tool in the hand, as long as I'm fulfilling the purpose, there's nothing that can take me out. Tool in his hand. We're not God's owner. And God's not our manager. We work for him and we belong to him. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 19 says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have from God. And watch this, watch this. And you are not your own. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. Newsflash for the world and the wisdom of this world. 
Nobody's body who is a Christian belongs to them. Therefore, you don't get to do what you want with your body. Watch out, I'm preaching real good right now. You don't get to say, it's my body. So I get to do what I want with my body. Not if you're a Christian, you don't. If you're a Christian, you say, God, my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I get to do with my body what you ask me to do with my body. That's why the Bible even talks about when you sin against your body, there's something different about that. Because you're sinning against the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that is why there is so much attack against the human body right now. Because it is meant to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. He says, you're not your own. He owns us because, if you were here last week, he's Yahweh. The creator and causer of all things. He created us. He gave us life. He breathed into our nostrils. He formed us from the dust of the ground. He crafted and shaped us, put fingers and toes on us, hair and a nose on us, grew arms and legs for us, put DNA in us, determined XY or XX for us. That is a determination God made. He put gifts in us, ability in us, talent in us, purpose in us, formed us on the outside and deposited what we needed on the inside. David, another psalm, acknowledges this God. He says, for you formed my inward parts. What are your inward parts? I know a lot of times we think it's the lungs and the heart, and I suppose it could be that. But I think it's deeper than that. I believe it's my code. I believe it's my destiny. I believe it's my purpose. I believe that at birth, everybody enters the world with what God put on the inside of you. And life is really about the discovery, first and foremost, of that purpose, which can only become as you connect with your creator and then the fulfillment of that purpose. David said, God, you formed it on the, you didn't just create the outside what people see, but you deposited stuff on the inside that sometimes I can't even see. You put my inward parts there. And he said, you covered me in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and my soul knows that very very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, in other words, God was creating you before you were even in your mother's womb. Because creation happens here before it happens here. Before you can ever build, craft, create, First, you need to have an idea. First, you need to have something in mind. Sometimes you even need plans. But how many of you know God's the master architect? He doesn't need to write the plans down. He's got the plans on his mind. And in secret, God was crafting every one of us and skillfully wrought in the lower parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance. So everything that I could be, everything that you wanted me to be, being yet unformed, even before I was an embryo, God, you had an idea. People mistakenly think life begins at conception. Back it up, back it up, back it up, back it up. It doesn't begin at conception. It begins prior to that. Conception is the proof that what God decided he wanted to do is arriving on the planet. When you have mind, in God's mind, yet being unformed. And your book, they were all written. And in your book, they were the days fashioned for me, when as yet there was none of them. 
Made so wonderfully that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 10, God says we are his masterpieces, works of art, one-of-a-kind originals. Go ahead and tell an artist that the masterpiece he created doesn't belong to him. Nobody has commissioned God. Nobody paid God. Nobody hired God. He commissioned himself when he said, let us create man in our image and after our likeness, and he owns us because he created us. But he owns us even beyond having created us. He owns us, the text says. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. Because we have been bought with a price. Imagine buying something you created. Imagine making a masterpiece. Showing somebody. And them telling you, I'll give you, give me a million dollars for that. Excuse me, I created that. You give me a million dollars for it. What you mean I give you a million dollars for it? To think that we were bought, we were gods, but we were bought. In Bible times, shepherds paid good money for their sheep. And because shepherds were manual laborers, they literally purchased their sheep with their bodies, the work of their bodies. Friends, that's what Jesus did. First Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says, Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having been dead to sin, might live unto righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. By the way, Christians, live holy lives. Live holy lives. We have gotten to a place in church where we simply think it's okay to live any way we want to. Who told you? Who told, who sold you that brand of Christianity? Who told you that grace is an excuse to live any way you want to? Who told you? The Bible says, should we sin that grace may abound? God forbid! We are to live unto God because we've been purchased and our sins were paid for by the body of Jesus. And the reason he did this, John chapter 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. He bought us by paying for us with our sins, with his body, but also First Peter chapter 1, verse number 8 says, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish, or without spot. The word precious is an accounting term. And it literally means priceless. And if the value of a thing is determined based on what somebody will pay for it, then guess what God says about you and I? We are priceless. That's what he thinks about us. And he bought us with the priceless, unmatched, Far greater than the cost of, of gold and silver. It would have been easy for God to buy us with some type of monetary ransom. He could have chunked off a piece of the street in heaven, threw it down on the earth and said, they're mine. But no, he bought us with something more precious than that. His blood. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow. That makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We've been bought. He owns us. And the reason why he had to buy back what belonged to him was because mankind was stolen through sin. 
But God, instead of turning his back on us, paid not once, but twice. First he created us, and then he redeemed us. David is telling us something that we have lost sight of. And that is that God owns us. But David's saying, he's not a taskmaster. He's not someone to be harshly feared. He's not cruel. He's not unkind. He's not hard. Matter of fact, do you remember the parable of the talents? The one guy got all screwed up because he thought God was a hard man. And so he hid it because he was afraid. See, God's not that kind of owner. Quite the contrary. He's an owner who sees us as priceless and loves us so much that it was his life instead of ours. And no doubt when David calls him my shepherd, the essence of this word is permeating through the song as it comes from David's heart. And David is thinking back to that time, I'm sure, when he went and rescued from a lion and a bear the sheep that were taken from his flock. A lion comes and snatches one of David's sheep. David doesn't go, oh no, the lion is stronger than I. He runs after the lion at the risk of his own life to redeem the sheep. And then the bear comes, and who knows what kind of bear. Could have been a big old grizzly. But David fearlessly puts his life on the line to redeem the sheep from the mouth of not just the lion, but the bear. And here's what David is telling us. That's our owner. That's our shepherd. That's our Jesus. He rescued the lion and the bear of sin. He rescued us from the mouth of death and sin. He put his life on the line for us because you and I are priceless to him. And it is his good pleasure to give us the kingdom. His goal is to bring us home to the place that he has created for us. David said, this is who I'm talking about. And so I trust him to watch over me, to care for me, to provide for me, to guide, to comfort me, to bring me through, to get me over, to pick me up, to take me back, and to make sure that I wind up in the place that's been created for me, which is heaven. Goal check. Goal check. I got a lot of goals. Earthly goals. I got a lot of them. Nothing wrong with earthly goals. In fact, if you don't have any, you'll kind of walk around aimless. You won't achieve if you don't have goals. So I'm not against goals. Can I, but can I tell you what the number one goal should be? To be found in him. When we leave this earth... Because the goal of God is to get us home safely. That's every shepherd's number one goal. David said, the Lord is my shepherd. I ask you today, is he yours? Is he your shepherd in life? Is he your shepherd in death? Is he your shepherd in decisions? Is he your shepherd in good times? Is he your shepherd in bad times? Is he your shepherd? There was a French chaplain that thought that he would give his soldiers that he ministered to comfort as they went out to battle and he would teach them the 23rd Psalm. And he would use those first five words, the Lord is my shepherd. And he taught them by their hand. The little pinky finger was the. The ring finger was the Lord. 
Because how many of you know in order for him to be your Lord, you've got to put a ring on it? You've got to be married to him. Right? The Lord is the middle finger. My, the index finger. The thumb shepherd. And he would tell them every time that they were scared or fearful to just, just take it off on their hand. And he never knew if they really got it or not, at least with a lot of them. And one day he wondered when there was a young man left on the battlefield dead. And when he went over to see, he found that the young man was clinching with his right hand, his left index finger. The Lord is my shepherd. Is he yours? Is he yours? That's what this life is all about. I know sometimes we don't realize it. Sometimes we forget about it. But this life is all about God being our shepherd. Would you stand to your feet with me? Thank you, Jesus. It's going to be a 42-week series, two, two words at a time. Praise the Lord. Do you know him today? If you leave this earth, will you be clutching your index finger? Is he your Lord? Is he your shepherd? Every head bowed, every eye closed. You're here today. Say, Pastor, I don't know if I'm right with God. You're watching by video. You're watching online. You're watching at one of our campuses. Pastor, I don't know if I'm right with God. How do I get right with him? You make him your shepherd. How do I do that? You confess your sins. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. You ask for forgiveness. Would you forgive me? You put your faith in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Lord, as I put my faith in you, I ask that you forgive me. You're my Lord and Savior. I trust you to be my shepherd. I'll never be the same. That's how you do it. Is there anybody here, every head bowed and every eye closed? Pastor, today, I want to yield my life to Jesus. I don't know if I'm right with God, but today I want to be made right with him. We won't embarrass you, but we do want you to get right with God. If that's you, just hold your hand up so I can pray with you. At our campuses, if that's you, hold your hand up so we can pray with you there. At, at, at home, watching on the computer or the TV, if God's touching your heart, just put your hand up to him right now. And I want to pray this prayer. Let's just pray it out loud just for the benefit of anybody anywhere who might see you here, anybody at our campuses at home that needs this message, feeling God touch their heart. Say it out loud with me. Heavenly Father, forgive me. I repent of my sins. And I ask Jesus to be my personal Savior. With your help, I'll never be the same. In Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer at one of our locations, one of the campus pastors will come and reach you. If you prayed it at home, there's a little button on your screen. Click it. Say, I give my life to Jesus so that we can reach out to you. Church, come on. Come on. It's time, right? It's time. It's time to bring the gospel message to the world.